Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this rainy spring day in D.C., where we promise that, unlike the mayor of Las Vegas, we will never propose using you as a control group for a deadly virus. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my abode in the District of Columbia. And today, I am thrilled to be rejoined by Francesca Chambers, one of our intrepid White House reporters who, during last week's episode, bravely fended off her cat while still delivering insight and wisdom into the Trump administration. Francesca, welcome back. Is your cat also going to make an appearance on this episode, or was that just a one-week thing? Like any good parent, I have subdued both of my children with and they are napping currently, so I don't think so. But I will say that was a really good opportunity to practice for the White House press briefing. It's almost like you scripted that response. It was so well done. <laughs> I did not. And of course, we are also happy to welcome back Adam Walner, McClatchy DC Bureau's politics editor. Adam, as far as I know, does not own a cat, but he does have a well-placed sign for Bell's Oberon Ale, currently adorned to the wall behind him. Adam, welcome. Yeah, I'm in a, a pet-free apartment, so shouldn't have any disruptions. But I'm holding off on cracking open an Oberon for now. You know, it's not even noon yet. But, you know, Maybe towards the end of this podcast, depending on how long we go, I might I might have to, to dip into the fridge. Pandemic rules. Yeah, yeah exactly. Pandemic as, long rules as, after, as long as it's afternoon, everything. I feel like any, anything goes. Oh, yeah. No, you're totally fine. Especially when you edit my story. Oh, be God, sure to, yeah. to have well, a few yeah. drinks I'm going to need to be a couple deep for that. <laughs> All right. Coming up, we are going to talk about President Donald Trump's seemingly immovable approval numbers. And whether it's at all possible that a catastrophic pandemic might not change his overall level of support. But first... In most presidential elections, pundits and perhaps even the campaigns themselves take the African-American vote for granted. Sure, turnout might fluctuate, just ask Hillary Clinton, but generally speaking, they're voters who are seen as voting in overwhelming numbers for the Democratic nominee and otherwise not much of a talking point during the contest. But this year might be different, and the news is both good and bad for both parties. Let's start with President Trump, his response to the pandemic, and how it's affected the African-American community. For that, Francesca, we're going to turn to you. You have written a great story this week about some dissension, even from conservative African-American leaders, about the Trump White House's response to the pandemic and maybe their lack of communication with the African-American community. But let's let's step back for a moment, set the stage. Why is this of a particular concern for African-Americans right now? So in certain states like North Carolina, South Carolina and Florida, African-Americans are catching coronavirus at a higher rate than other demographic groups. And they're also dying from it at a higher rate than other demographic groups. And that is data that the White House has affirmed and the president has repeatedly pointed to. And yet to the point before yesterday, there had not been specific action from the White House to address this. They had held some calls with African-American leaders, including black pastors, and there have been outreach in the administration to minority business owners. But as far as a strategy to combat those deaths among African-Americans, that is just not something that they had seen. And they believed that that also came from engagement with them. They they felt that the calls that they had weren't enough on, on a call with the vice president and the surgeon general, they weren't invited to speak at all. They just heard from them for about 25 minutes or so. And they had advice that they would have otherwise given to the White House. Now, that advice differs depending on whether you're a conservative or a liberal. I'll point out conservatives are more likely to say that personal responsibility is at play here and that people who are in vulnerable communities need to take more precautions. They need to wear gloves. They need to wear masks, whereas liberals are more likely to say that this is a systemic problem about community health care and health care in general 
cycle that has been going on for decades. And so yesterday, I will say, you saw the White House at the briefing open up after my story ran and talk about this and unveil some new strategies and potentially some new opportunities where they could work on this problem. And we will be following up on that. Yeah, I mean, Francesca, it it seems like I mean, look, what you're saying is this is a bigger problem in the African-American community, but we haven't seen a the sort of requisite response from the White House as of yet. Now, maybe that's changing. Look, in the big picture, this is obviously matters to the, the health and safety in the African-American community. But this is a politics podcast, and it also matters to the Trump reelection. Can you just take a step back? This is a president and a Republican Party that at least says it's intent on trying to make a real effort with the African-American community in this presidential election. Can you describe some of those efforts and how might the response to the pandemic begin to complicate that? Absolutely. And while we didn't get into the politics of that as much in that particular story, extrapolating from that, this is something that the president and the Trump campaign have talked about in the past. The president had been promoting black unemployment and how those numbers had been declining before this global crisis. And the Trump campaign had said that it was going to be opening up these street front stores, so to speak, in which they would have black voices for Trump outreach. And those were going to be in urban communities like Atlanta and Charlotte. And also there would be some in Florida and other places. Those have not opened up yet, of course, because the entire economy shut down and people went into self-quarantine. But that is still something that I've been told that they are looking to do. And so as you marry that with the White House response, which is a little bit different than the campaigns, I was hearing from black conservatives who said that over the past few years, even though the president has been saying one thing, they don't feel that the White House has done the work to put together strong coalitions of African-Americans who can take the White House message into those communities, not just when it comes to coronavirus, but any issue. And when they have reached out to black leaders, they feel that too often it has been folks that are aligned with the Democratic Party or liberal pundits. And they cited very specific people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. And I spoke to Al Sharpton for my story, and even he agreed that the White House needs to do a better job of reaching out to African-American Republicans. Francesca, I just want to be clear. There was obviously frustration with the overall response from a lot of Americans with the Trump administration. And we've talked about that at length on this show. But what we're talking about now is not just that frustration, but a frustration with a particular lack of response um, and lack of communication to the African-American community. That That's really the, the rub here where there's a little uh, extra frustration that spilled out this week. Right. And that that goes back to what I was saying about when they did have a call with the vice president and surgeon general that they spoke at them and they did not give them an opportunity to speak and they would have wanted that opportunity. And of course, I will say the White House also told me, well, there have been other private conversations between the president and African-American leaders. And of course, there are conversations taking place all over the administration, not just within the White House, about various aspects of this issue. And the White House also noted that they are working on some projects that they started to unveil yesterday at the briefing that would address some of these issues. But again, even conservatives are saying that you are now more than three years into this administration and it took the coronavirus and black people dying from it for them to take these steps. 
You know, Adam, according to the exit polls from 2016, Hillary Clinton won the African-American vote with 89 percent compared to Donald Trump's 8 percent. That was actually a little off what Barack Obama did in 2008 and 2012. And of course, the overall turnout in the community was also down from those years. However, that's obviously still a, a commanding advantage. How seriously do you take the GOP's efforts to to reach out to the African-American community, do you think that there are any inroads that they can make? Yeah, I, I certainly think there are limited inroads they can make. And when we're talking about, you know, Republican outreach to, to, to black voters, you know, we're talking about it at the margins, right? We're not talking about somehow Republicans are going to magically make up, you know, 80 plus percentage points or whatever and win this group. It's all, it's all at the margins. And as you mentioned, you know, Hillary Clinton already ran a little bit behind what Barack Obama achieved with black voters during his two presidential bids. And some of the, the recent polls that has come out in battleground states now that we're kind of in the general election portion of the campaign suggests that Joe Biden's also starts off a little bit behind where Hillary Clinton ended up in 2016 and has some work to do to consolidate those voters. And I think, um, you know, Alex, as you've done some some reporting on already, is that Republicans really see a, an opening, particularly with young black men and young Hispanic men as well, which is sort of an ancillary part of this as well. And so, you know, if they can even, you know, eat into the Democrats' advantage with this group by a couple of percentage points, obviously that makes a huge difference at, at the margins in states like Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that were only decided by a handful of votes. So obviously the coronavirus response that the White House has, has been leading these past few weeks, I think certainly complicates their their efforts to, to, to do so. But that doesn't mean that Democrats can just take this group for granted, right? Um, I'd reference some of that polling that came out this week in Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania. If you compare it to where the exit polls were in those states, Trump is, is basically more or less at the same percentage that he was in in 2016 right around you know 8 you know, 9% among black voters in these states. But Joe Biden still has work to do to get to where Hillary Clinton was in 2016. You know, in, in Florida, for instance, just to use one poll as an example, 19% of black voters said that they are undecided or are going to vote for a third party candidate. So just because Trump and the Republicans may be sort of fumbling their outreach to these voters doesn't mean that Joe Biden and the Democrats can take them for granted. And there's also the possibility that many of these voters just won't turn out. That was, you know, one of Hillary Clinton's big problems, obviously, in 2016, that so many black voters just stayed home because they felt that their their needs weren't being spoken to. Right. You know, Francesca, I mean, this is a presidential race that is going to be run on the margins, right? At least that's what we expect. That's what we've been expecting for years. And that's why it can be easy to overlook a group like African-American voters who, again, vote so overwhelmingly for Democrats. But this isn't about Republicans winning a majority or even close to a majority. All you're talking about is moving the margins by a few percentage points in their favor. And that can have a huge effect in, say, the city of Milwaukee or Philadelphia or Detroit in these battleground states that are going to determine the election. But it, it feels like just like everything else in this election, those efforts and maybe whatever inroads the Trump administration have made have been complicated now. And that and that's a generous term, I think, a complicated by their the coronavirus and their response to it. So I'll return to the state of Georgia, which we discussed last week, but I'll, continuing on that theme. Is Georgia is on your mind, Francesca? Is that what you're <laughs> saying? Georgia is on my mind. And what happens in Georgia may not stay in Georgia, Alex. <laughs> I've been saving that one up. So with the president and his campaign, one of the black voices for Trump community outreach centers that was supposed to open up was going to open up in Atlanta. And it still could, of course, assuming that we all return to being able to do the sorts of things we were able to do before. But this matters because Georgia is a state that President Trump 
won last time. But Atlanta is an area that has a large number of African-Americans, and it is an area that Republicans don't always do so well in. And so you can even see in the fact that his campaign wanted to target that area and a state that he won, how concerned they are about how the black vote could potentially shift things in that state. And Again, going back to the topic of Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor there, she was able to turn out more African-Americans for the Democratic Party. And that is something you can just see in the Trump campaign's actions. They're very concerned about happening in this election, regardless of who ends up being on the ticket with Joe Biden. So Adam referenced it earlier. We're going to turn now to the Democrats. Uh, Obviously, Trump and the GOP have their own problems with African-Americans and and Latino voters. But I think there is a growing feeling within the Democratic Party, based on some reporting I've done this week and some of the polling data, some of which Adam referenced, that Democrats have a a burgeoning issue of their own, not just maybe overall with the Latino and African-American community, but in particular, Latino men and African-American men, and maybe even more specifically, young Latino men and young African-American men. You see this in some of the polling data. You see that right now there is a big chunk of those voters who are undecided in this election. And it's one of the reasons you see Joe Biden, even if he's performing well, say, with seniors right right now, that his overall numbers still in many head-to-head matchups, they're positive against Trump, but he's still at or below 50%. 50% obviously being a key mark in in any election. And One of the reasons and some of the concern for Democrats have is it's not just that these voters aren't going to turn out for Joe Biden. It's just that some of them are actually open to Donald Trump. And I know that that will be a controversial claim for some Democrats. But if you talk to a lot of pollsters who have studied those communities closely, they really see, again, among young men in particular within Latino and and African-American communities, that there is a real openness to Donald Trump. And I guess, Adam, you know, my question to you is – Part of this seems related to what is becoming, I think, an increasing problem for Democrats, or at least the perception of it, that they take some of these communities for granted, that they don't do the necessary outreach that we see. How important is this going to be for Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be very important when we're talking about what his coalition is going to look like for the general election. And, you know, just simply by comparing it to where Democrats were in 2016, you know, they had two very big glaring weaknesses that ended up costing them the election. One was they just weren't able to get black voters to turn out at the same rates as they did in 2008 and 2012. And then, of course, they lost a lot of, you know, white working class voters to to Donald Trump. So but but again, you know, Biden's not going to be able to just kind of put all his chips in that basket and say, okay, we're just going to go all in on trying to, to bring these these voters in for November because one they have opportunities elsewhere you know as as you mentioned you know while, while we're talking about that Joe Biden isn't where he probably would need to be or where you think a Democrat would need to be with Black and Hispanic voters he's still leading overall in Florida and Pennsylvania and Michigan and why is that it's because he's doing remarkably well with older voters you know this was a group that that went for for Trump in in all three of those states in those uh, that had polls this week that I mentioned Florida Pennsylvania Michigan and Biden has completely turned those results on its head. So is it possible to have a message that both appeals to, you know, older, often whiter voters and at the same time, young black and Latino men? That's a pretty tricky needle to to thread. 
So the question becomes, you know, how do you sort of divvy up your resources? And if we're talking about which voters turn out, older voters are a lot more likely to turn out than younger voters of color. So I think that's going to be sort of the balancing act that uh, that Biden is going to need to, to to walk here over these next few months as he tries to figure out what his coalition is going to look like. How much of an effort does he want to put into these younger voters that, you know, are maybe at risk of drifting a little bit to Trump or just staying home altogether? Or does he go all in on maybe this this kind of newfound opportunity with senior citizens? And I think part of the concern Democrats had politically with Joe Biden's campaign was that his natural inclination in terms of that division of resources that Adam talked about, that he would focus on older Mm -hmm. voters and that there just wouldn't be as much of an inclination to reach out to younger voters of color. They wouldn't have the right message. They wouldn't have maybe even make the minimum effort necessary to reach them. Because again, it's a question of resources and you have to try to uh, apply them as efficiently as you can. Now, I want to be clear that this idea that the Republican Party can attract men of of color is not necessarily a new one. I mean, this is something that the GOP has been talking about election cycle after election cycle. And when you talk to Republican pollsters who have studied the data this time around, they very readily acknowledge that, right? They know that this is not new. They know that there's been expectation in the past that has just never borne out. That said, they think, they think, and some Democrats genuinely agree with them that this election cycle might be different. It's not that a lot of these voters aren't turned off by Donald Trump or that they find him a little ridiculous. They do. And in fact, I had some Republicans even acknowledge to me that a lot of these Latino voters who are open to voting for him see him as racist. They do, but they also just don't see it as very important. They're not nearly as turned off by his public persona in the way that you say, just as an example, women of of color are, who basically are completely done. Everyone agrees are just done with Donald Trump, don't want to hear anything more from him, in a large part because of his persona. For men, that's just not the case. And the reason they're willing to, to give him more of a look, in part, is also because of the economy and that they see greater opportunity in this economy. They don't think he's doing it for them. Again, they don't think he particularly loves the Latino community, for example. They just see that the economy is good and that they can get a piece of that. And that's why they're open. Now, it might not bear out, but again, there's a consensus among strategists of both parties that there is a greater opportunity here. So, Francesca, my my question for you, someone who knows the Trump re-election campaign well, how much follow through do you think we'll see reaching out to these voters? How much of a priority do you think they would be? Well, when it comes to women, if I may, in particular with the Trump campaign, they are certainly focused on them as a broader group. And you can see that in their Women for Trump outreach. They have put a lot of resources into that. And one message that they're pushing through the Women for Trump initiative is what you just referenced, which is these kitchen table issues and women saying that, you know, maybe I don't agree with all the things that he said about women that have otherwise been framed as derogatory, but I do think that he is the best person for the economy. And Alex, I have to say, it sounds like the president's son, by the way, listens to your podcast because he tweeted since then. Don Jr., yes, because he tweeted since the last one and said that the message now is the president will make America great again, again. (laughs) And we talked about that last week. So that is now their message of the Trump campaign is that, look, he is the best person for the economy, even though the economy isn't going too well right now. That's totally out of his control. But he did a good job with it before and he's going to do a great job with it again. So reelect Donald Trump. That seems to be obviously one of the most important questions going forward. How does the perception of the economy, how is it shaped by both campaigns? 
And how do voters see it? Do they hold Donald Trump accountable in any way for the economic collapse caused by the pandemic? Do they rate his recovery efforts well? Do they give him credit because the economy was strong before the pandemic that they're more inclined to think that he can bring it back to where it was beforehand, like the Trump campaign would argue uh, and apparently is arguing now that they can? And I think that's almost an impossible question to answer right now. But whatever the answer is, it's going to be incredibly important, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I just want to make one other point on Republican efforts to win over young voters of color is I think Democrats also have to think long term about this, right, is, you know, maybe they can get away in in 2020 with, you know, not making further inroads with them and relying on older voters and other just voters who are opposed to Trump generally to win the election. But I think they would have to be concerned about Republicans making any sort of foothold, even a limited one with that community for future elections. Because, you know, if, if they vote Republican once in 2020, you know, you know, who's to say they wouldn't be open to doing that again down the road when a more you know palatable candidate is on the ballot? Okay, let's touch briefly on Trump's poll numbers, because there have been a battery of polls this week, both head-to-head matchups with Joe Biden and what I want to talk about first, his own approval mm-hmm. numbers. And there is something, I think, incredibly remarkable that, is, that has happened to date. His approval numbers, even in the middle of a global crisis, are almost exactly where they've always been. If you look at the 538 tracker for Trump's approval, it is at you know something like 43.5%, right? Within that band of 40 to 45%, and he has been effectively his entire three years in office so far. I've been joking with sources that it's almost as if God has designed a political science experiment this year to see if anything, if anything at all, can move Trump's numbers. First came impeachment, right? One of the the most dramatic things that our government can do to a president. And what happened? Almost nothing. Trump's numbers maybe ticked up a little bit, but he was still largely within that band of 45%. That didn't work. And so God decided, okay, well, let's up the ante. Let's unleash a pandemic on the world and see if that moves Trump's numbers. And so far, Adam, it hasn't. Now, there's obviously a question here of whether or not just because his numbers haven't moved to date that they won't in the coming months. But it's still this this remarkable fact that, I mean, attitudes about Trump are so ingrained mm-hmm that even something like this doesn't seem to be moving them, at least in the short right. term. It's almost as if we're living in a hyper-partisan political environment, Alex. Could that be the case where <laughs> the people are just so dug that. in that literally nothing will move them? And yeah, you know, honestly, I, you know, I don't really expect, you know, unless, you know, the economy really does tank here, you know, heading into the election and, you know, the pandemic is still hanging over us, you know, you know, maybe Trump's numbers will drive down a little bit, but I don't see that changing a whole lot between now and November. So if you're a Republican or you're a Trump supporter, you're thinking to yourself, that's great because if his approval ratings are more or less where they were when he was first elected in 2016, why can't he basically win the same way he did four years ago? But the one dynamic that could be different and some early polls are already suggesting is that Trump is not winning voters who have a negative opinion of both candidates, right? That was the the key in 2016 for him is there were a lot of voters who still voted for him, even though they said they didn't like him. It's just that they liked Hillary Clinton even less, right? And given that we live in such a partisan environment, there's again going to be a good chunk of voters that don't really like Trump and they don't really like Biden. So it just comes down to a lesser of two evils, more or less. And right now, early polls are suggesting that Joe Biden has the advantage with those voters. Obviously, you know, the general election campaign hasn't even really begun yet in earnest. And there's going to be a lot of back and forth between Biden and Trump between now and November. But I think, you know, that's going to really be the key to watch is not so much how much does Trump's approval 
rating fluctuate between now and November because everything we've seen over the past four years suggests that there's not going to be much that can happen uh, for, for those numbers to move. But if, you know, just that battle between voters who don't really like either candidate and sort of are holding their nose and just picking one, it can Trump basically kind of reestablish his, his advantage there. Right. And I don't mean to suggest that it's all good news for the president. Of course, no. in a time of crisis like this, he probably should have expected that he would see a bump in support like we saw in some of the first few weeks Absolutely. in March. And of course, that we've seen in a much more substantial way from many of the governors across the country. So it, it seems clear to me that politically speaking, this was a huge missed opportunity for the Trump administration so far. And Francesca, we've also seen some other discouraging news for the president. I know what they like to say about polls. I know what the polls somewhat more largely showed in 2016 and that they're dismissive of this, but there was, again, a battery of polls released this week that showed Trump trailing in Florida, a state he absolutely must win, down four points in the Quinnipiac poll that we referenced earlier on this show. And then a couple of Fox News polls in Pennsylvania and Michigan, which the discerning listener will know are very important states for November, show him down in the high single digits. It's a discouraging set of numbers, set of data for the, the Trump administration, the head-to-head matchups with Joe Biden so far. But is there yet concern within the Trump re-election campaign? Well, with respect to what Adam was saying, too, I just want to add that organizationally is often how we look at this and say, OK, whichever candidate has the best organization can turn out their voters has the best chance of winning. But we saw this play out in the Democratic primary where Joe Biden's campaign had no money. They had no organization. And yet people came out for him because they thought that he had the best chance of beating Donald Trump and consolidated their support. So I, I'm curious and we'll be watching this with interest in the general election as to whether or not Biden can pull that off again against Donald Trump, who does have an organization, at least technologically, that Brad Parscale, his campaign manager, has run that does collect data from all these people and they have targeted messaging. And they obviously, as a re-election campaign, have done this before. I mean, there are other advantages they do have like that, the incumbent advantage. When it comes to President Trump himself and the White House again, there is also this argument about the polling as to whether or not these daily press briefings are actually helpful. Helping him because he says that the ratings are very high. It is very clear that many people are paying attention to them and watching them. But how helpful is it for the president to have reporters who are confronting him with here's what you said, here's what has since happened, and then going back and forth with them over those things? And at the, you know, at the same time, he spends a lot of time on the windup at the beginning and, and talking about things he wants to. He spent last Saturday a briefing talking for nearly an hour, an hour before the question and answer portion started. And he spent that time haranguing a reporter who wasn't in the room and, and on a report about whether his chief of staff cried and maybe why he cried. And so there is a question as you look at the polling as to how much of that is having an effect as well. I got to say, during this entire discussion of polls, there's been a little voice <laughs> in my head that yes. has sounded an awful lot like Kristen Roberts dismissing all of this yeah. data and saying that all of it is crap <laughs> um, and that we're, we're falling yeah, for the same absolutely. trap. And I think one point on that is we don't want to put so much stock into just a handful of polls and battleground states that have come out this week so far out from the election. But I think, you know, the one thing that it does 
point to, and I, you know, for everyone to kind of just be considering as, as we get closer and closer to November is that, you know, the story that it's, that the polls are telling is that Trump's path to reelection is, is pretty narrow in the sense that he doesn't really have a lot of opportunities to expand the map. Whereas Democrats now that, you know, they see multiple paths to, to reelection, whether it's through the Midwestern states, whether it's through some of the, the Sunbelt states that are coming onto the map. Doesn't mean that, you know, Trump doesn't have a viable path to reelection. He absolutely does. It's just that he pretty much has to follow kind of the, the same one that he took in 2016, right? Whereas it seems like Democrats do have more opportunities to get to, to, to 270. Whether or not they can actually capitalize on that, we have a long few months of campaigning ahead of us. Yeah, I mean, one thing to note for the listener, one dynamic that has shown itself in over and over and over again in polls is that Trump's number and his head-to-head matchup with Joe Biden, the amount of support that he gets is actually lower than his approval rating in those states, both when you see it nationally and in, in, right. in individual states. It usually doesn't work that way. It's not clear if that's going to hold through November, but it's something really worth taking a look at and wondering why people who approve of the president aren't yet ready to vote for him for re-election. Just something to, to keep in mind. Okay, we're going to quickly turn to my favorite segment every week, where Francesca and Adam are going to tell us something new, fresh, or original from their reporting notebook. Adam, you're up first. Yeah, so, you know, obviously there's been this ongoing national battle over mail voting these past few weeks, as the pandemic has really upended a lot of um, the, the, the primary calendar here. But I think one story that's gone a little under the radar is how you know really the local governments are the ones that are taking matters into their own hands on this because you know when you're at the state level and the national level it kind of turns into this sort of partisan back and forth but looking just at a few developments this week in a couple of battleground states one being Florida um, David Smiley of the Miami Herald reported that election offices in Miami-Dade Broward and Palm Beach counties which are home to more than a quarter of Florida's voters are preparing to send out vote by mail registration forms to every voter in those counties. And then a a similar development in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, the city council approved a program this week. They're going to send all of the city's more than 300,000 registered voters an absentee ballot in the mail postage paid return envelope for the November elections. So, you know, this could, you know, obviously be a huge deal in these battleground states where, again, you know, everything at the margins matters. You know, these elections are only decided by a few thousand votes in these states. And if some of the most populous areas in these states, particularly, you know, in in a lot of cases, they're very Democratic areas are automatically getting absentee ballots sent to them to to send back in the mail could uh, have a very interesting impact on, on turnout in those states. Okay, Francesca, what do you got? Well, this didn't make the final cut in our previous story, but in that interview with Al Sharpton this week, he told me that he had been in conversation with Joe Biden in the last few days about the Veep stakes. And I have to tell you, if Al Sharpton can't get the goods, then I I don't know that I'm going to be able to. He said that Joe Biden would not say how long of a timeline he was looking at for picking a running mate. He said that he couldn't really get an answer on whether or not uh, that person would be a woman of color or a woman at any point in that conversation. I mean, Joe Biden has committed to some of those things, but he didn't give him a clear indication uh, on any of those matters. But Al Sharpton said, He does like Stacey Abrams for the position, would like to see Kamala Harris considered as well. So we'll keep trying. (laughs) I I love tidbits that that get left out of stories. They're nonetheless informative for readers and sharing them here on the podcast. Uh, Good stuff. Mine, I'll keep it brief. There is a Democratic polling outfit, Navigator, that released some really interesting data this week. Among people 
Americans who know someone who's been infected with the coronavirus, approval of Donald Trump's response stands at 40% with 58% disapproval. Among people who do not know someone who has been infected, you see a big swing, 47% approve while only 51% disapprove. And you see these splits, it's not just in the overall numbers, but among independents and even Republicans People who know someone who's been infected have a dimmer view of how Donald Trump has responded to the the outbreak. Just something to keep in mind, one addendum to that in this poll, 33% of Americans know someone who has been infected by COVID-19. So something to watch, perhaps, unfortunately, is it expected to continue to expand across the country that maybe Donald Trump's approval rating is going to take another dip. Okay, Francesca and Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your contributions, as always, guys. You bet. Thank Time you. to dip into the Oberon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to send a thanks to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.